This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Epsigon and TriggerMesh. On this episode, I chat with Ader Lessa about the well-architected serverless lens. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 61. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm speaking with Ada Lesser. Hey, Ada, thanks for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure to be here. So I'm super excited to have you here. Um, so you are a principal specialist solutions architect at Amazon Web Services. So why don't you tell the listeners what you do at Amazon Web Services and sort of what a principal specialist solutions architect does? <laughs> I know it's a long a title, so I guess we can just say I'm a solutions architect at AWS. Uh, my my day to day is basically working with customers and enable developer teams to find the best solutions on how to either build something on AWS or migrate, let's say, a microservices uh, monolith to a microservices, or optimize something that they have. But more recently, I'm also working with customers to help them build developer communities inside, similar to what we have at Amazon with principles and stuff like that. Very cool. Now, I know you're doing a million different things. I don't know how you're not running AWS yet. I think you're <laughs> you're next in line, I think. Um, but you're doing a million things there. And one of the things, though, that you've been working on in the past, and I know you're still involved with it, um, is the well-architected serverless lens. And uh, I, I want to get into this because this is one of those things where if you're trying to find best practices and you're reading all these blog posts and you're looking at anti-patterns and good patterns and all this kind of stuff, um, I think it gets really, really confusing. And your team and, and a bunch of other people at AWS and a bunch of the community heroes and all kinds of people got together and put together this serverless lens. So if people are familiar with the well-architected framework, which is talked about quite a bit, there's also this thing called the well-architected serverless lens. So what, what's the difference between those two things? Sure. So the Well Architect has started way back uh, in 2016, even before that, to be fairly honest, where we customers were looking to use AWS, but we have roughly, roughly 50 services back then. <laughs> Compared to today, we have a, we had a lot more. And basically, those customers were asking, how do I use X service versus the other service? How do I go to production with this critical application? How do I model from my on-premises applications to something more cloud native? How do I migrate and things like this? Or even specific questions like, how do I set up a Mochi account? How do I better protect my accounts from a security perspective or billing? So well-architected brings all those best practices that are agnostic from a workload perspective that typically applies to many of them, uh, whether using serverless or containers. So usually it would, would work pretty well. But the challenge with well-architected as the platform evolved, we started to have more high-level services like well, serverless or some service like AI ML, which mm -hmm. you have to treat them slightly different. The best practices still apply on how you set up AWS accounts, how do you do backups, how do you think about relational databases versus NoSQL databases. But when you get to things like Mochi AZ and EBS volumes for serverless, they don't quite make sense. So the lens was a project to say, what are the customers using that well-architected 
actually help them, but they still lack a lot of good practices that are very specific to the technology they chose. So serverless was one of them. IoT was also another one. And more recently, last month, we also announced Analytics Lens. So if you're mm. interested in big data, AI, so those pieces, Analytics covered that pretty well. So that's the difference. The Lens is a, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't replace well-architected. It's more as an add-on to yeah. all these best practices we've been sharing for the past for the past few years. Yeah, because I mean, as an add-on, I mean, it makes sense. So the original serverless, or sorry, the original um, well-architected framework has, I think, 47 questions or so um, mm -hmm. that ask you about specific areas. And there's the five pillars, and we'll get into some of that because I do think it, it's it's interesting to think of it that way. Um, but like the the serverless lens just has more questions. So what what's the reason for all those extra questions? Sure. So when our, the web architected, when we started the lens, we if I'm not mistaken, again, there was a 47 questions, but now uh, we had just a recent update with some of those questions right. might change now. But the serverless lens, we had, I think, if I'm not mistaken, we started with 31 questions <laughs> because we were trying to get every single detail of serverless yeah. and every best practice. But that was primarily a academic paper. So lens started as a, let's set up a, a document where you can go and find out how, when do I use serverless? Is serverless a good thing for me? How do I choose between all these services? How do I know the operational best practices for serverless? As we started digging into those best practices, we felt we needed a lot more questions to dive into. Okay, what type of metrics do you need? What type of alarm do you need? When do you use containers versus Lambda functions? When do you use orchestration versus synchronous calls? And we, so we only started in 2017. We had all these questions that customers were asking us. We put together into a document and we started writing. So that took us roughly six to 10 months to put together into like 50 pages uh, when we announced Serverless Lens. Right. And then that was a white paper, like you said, that was just a document. Um, but now that's been moved into the well-architected tool, which is pretty cool. If anyone's used that or hasn't, I suggest you go try it out. Um, but that just takes you through and asks you all those questions and you can, you know, kind of keep track of your progress. So how did how did you go from the white paper to the the tool? Yeah. So in 2017, when we announced Werner went on the stage and talked about this idea of getting those best practices for serverless. And in 2018, we got an immense amount of downloads uh, for Lens. And was, a, if I'm not mistaken, it was over 20,000 downloads in less than six months, specifically for serverless best practices. But then those questions started to ask more. How about Alexa? How about X, Y, Z? So what we found was trying to keep writing those pieces into the document was pretty difficult to keep up with the serverless space as well and how much right. it changes. So what we found was instead of keep adding more questions and more pages of documents, we we thought we came together and thought, what if we we evolve the lens project into the console? So the customer would go to the console and say, I want to review my architecture. And I'm also doing serverless, I'm also doing analytics, I'm doing IoT, or I'm doing something specific for FSI, financial mm -hmm. services, for instance. So we we thought we would experiment first with serverless. And that's exactly what we did. But the challenge of migrating to the console is that, as you probably have seen the console, you go and you review your architecture, you have a very specific question and a few best practices you typically are doing or you're not doing it. Right. That didn't map well with the white paper academic because you had to read 
what was the question, what was the best practice, how you implemented. So we went from those 30 plus questions to down to nine questions with uh, a much more specific best practices. So that we announced in February. Yeah, just a few months ago. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great it's a great tool. And I mean, and one of the things, you know, you're talking about best practices. So, you know, yesterday's serverless best practice could be today's serverless anti-pattern, right? Because it does, it changes, it True. changes very rapidly, right? And things are always sort of changing. So how, how do you actually figure out what the best practice is? Because there's a lot of posts out there about best practices and anti, you know, anti-patterns and so forth, especially like whether, you know, lambdas should be calling lambdas and stuff like that. So <laughs> how do you actually uh, go about deciding whether or not something is a best practice or not? And, and how does it make it into the lens? Sure. And I think that's a great question. And that was probably the, the fear number one when trying to think about serverless best practices in 2017, because you remember API Gateway was back there. It was very early days. SQS wasn't even event source back in the days. Right. There was so many questions we were kind of unsure whether that would work or not. So one of the two things that happens in this well-architected is that we have the concept of the pillars, as you mentioned, the five pillars. Yep operations, security, uh, performance, reliability, and cost. That helps a lot in breaking that down of those best practices and think, does that, does that fit into here? Or is that more of an opinion as, as of now? And then the second is that we have a rule of 80% to 20%. If it's something that's been working for 80% of our customers and our technical field, solutions architects, technical account managers, evangelists, developer advocates, all these people and those communities internally know that these are things that what's working for customers in production, then this fits into the 80%. Things that are the 20% are what we call the edge or leading practices, are something that we know it might work for certain customers who have a certain expertise already with AWS, but it eventually might become a common practice, like the lambda to lambda communication type of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, that back in the days, what we weren't even discussing that thing, or right. something like Event Bridge that until this year it wasn't something widely discussed. Uh, so something we definitely would get there. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was actually going to say, like, uh, you know, something like EventBridge, which is probably my favorite service now that exists. <laughs> I mean, maybe after Lambda. Uh, you know, that that's not in the the lens right now. And you've had a bunch of new services that have come out, like uh, Lambda Layers, uh, Provision Concurrency, RDS Proxy. These are not in the lens yet. Is it just because they're is just because they're so new, or are there certain things about those services have they not matured enough yet? where they're considered to be best practices? It's a bit of two. Uh, I think it's it's always like we love, one of the pieces that we love at AWS is we like to launch those features or those services early so we can iterate on those features and those services with customers as we hear from them. It's mm -hmm. quite similar to the, the process of deriving best practices for well-architected. When we announced something like EFS was actually just announced, Immediately, yeah. you would think, well, EFS for Lambda makes a lot of sense for AIML use cases, for some shared state, if you will. But it's something that we have to observe how that's working out for customers. When you look at the lens, the white paper per se, we have the scenarios pieces that we not only share with you, these are the common architecture diagram for that specific use case, but we share with what we call configuration notes, which is what are the common gotchas and caveats 
that might be different depending on use case and depending how you use. One, one type of use case might be true to the vast majority, but if you have high throughput or high concurrency, that the whole best practice landscape changes completely to you. So that's one of them. So for those new features, we are definitely listening, getting, having our ears to the ground and hearing from customers how you're using, how is that working out for you? Uh, layers is one example. It's something that right. we, we've seen customers using for using uh, for custom builds like FFmpeg or something very specific like a Chrome-less, browser-less, if you will. It's yeah. working out really, really great. Everyone loves it and it works. But when you're trying to use layers in a very large enterprise, you have a couple of caveats. For instance, when you're trying to share dependencies that change very frequently, you have all those Lambda functions now being redeployed and that causes code starts. So there are some caveats that we need to make sure we know exactly how to deal with. So when we write, we tell you, this is why this is a good practice. These are the caveats. And if you are in the caveats piece, this is how you handle it. Yeah. Yeah. And I know with layers too, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the way the versioning works where it's just an incremental version, version one, version two, version three. Uh, and I know you can use like SAR, for example, the serverless application repository, and you can wrap a layer up in a SAR app and give it, you know, and give it uh, uh, semantic versioning and things like that. There's just a lot of steps to go through where you're right, working out what is the best way to do it um, would be uh, would be really interesting. So I, I do want to go back to EventBridge for a second, though, because this is one of those services where when it was announced and it was announced in the middle of the summer last year, I think it was. Um, so it's about a year old now. And uh, actually, it's just over a year old. It was just announced about a year ago, which is kind of crazy to think about. <laughs> there has not been a lot of um, there's not been a lot of literature on EventBridge, right? And I know that you see some people using it. You've got some dev, dev advocates that are really pushing it. Um, I love it. I think it's great. I think the things that have been added to it. But are there reasons why that still hasn't made it into the lens? I mean, I know that you know you don't have things like DLQs. Is that is that still one of the reasons why I think that's not there yet? Yeah, there, there, there are a couple of reasons. One, uh, it's primarily a time for me as well to distill all the feedback we get from customers right. and figure out what is a good practice versus what people learned uh, by trying and error at some point, which is not something we want to tell everyone, just go and use it. And, yeah. and, and there's also the fact of what you just mentioned about DLQs and some of those pieces. And the well-architected, when we're about to suggest a service or suggest a way of doing, we always have to keep in mind the five pillars. So for instance, I know EventBridge, we know EventBridge doesn't have DLQ, but nothing stops you from having a SQ, SQ as a target first, and then a Lambda yeah. function to handle that. But that equally is, when you're looking for a large enterprise, that's gonna get easily 300, 400, hundreds of queues, which then makes, you makes it more difficult for you to manage uh, that piece at scale. Right. So some of those pieces we come into play. But DLQs in some of those pieces, I think I would definitely add in their caveats. There are ways for you to work in production and works really well, but these are more caveats. So it's something we're, we're looking at right now to introduce as a scenario and not uh, under a question specific. The pieces that we're not entirely sure yet uh, from a well-architected perspective on EventBridge is some of the event modeling, some of those best practices, inter-service versus intra-service, multi-account approach. It's very easy for EventBridge, which, by the way, it's one of my favorite services too, although I shouldn't be saying that. It's, 
it's it's great that EventBridge can have all can give you that visibility of how these async communications are going, their schemas, download code bindings. This is fantastic. But there's also there's also some of the tracing capabilities that you want to know where these events went, who filtered, who routed to where. So we're trying to figure out those patterns and how can we tell customers to use EventBridge at that work for at least 80% of customers that may not have this extensive background on event modeling, DDD, and all those good tools and good practices. Customers who have been doing event microservices or events at some, some extent, it's kind of a no-brainer. EventBridge it just fits the bill and it works like that. But on our side from the well-architected, we also have to be mindful of customers who may not have used the cloud or are trying to use for the first time and they're looking for those good practices to, mm -hmm. to jump straight in. So going from, micro, from monolith straight to something like events may be a bit too much for them. So we're treading carefully on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't work for AWS, so I will tell people to go use EventBridge because um, I, I, think it's, I think it's amazing. Um, so one other thing, though, maybe about this and, and not EventBridge specifically, but you mentioned this idea of leading practices or edge practices. So how much of a risk is it? Because, I mean, every service that goes out there from AWS is, you know, everything has its problems here and there. There's, you know, little caveats here and there. But for the most part, those services are solid and you can use those services, or at least I've always felt I can use those services in production with quite a bit of confidence. So is is there some sort of rule that I should that I should follow as a developer or as a as an organization where I say, okay, I'm following the serverless lens 95%, but I do want to introduce EventBridge or I do want to introduce, you know, the RDS proxy or something like that. Is there is there you know, is that okay for me to do? I mean, I'm sure you'll say it is, but I mean, is that like, where, where do I draw that line? I don't want to be all leading edge, but at the same time, um, I want I want to be able to take advantage of some of these new services. Yeah, I think it's, uh, as you mentioned, is it's 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 hard to say to everyone, don't use these services, don't use these features, because if the service is out there, there is a need for it. Like we have, okay. as we've seen at Lego going out and about explaining how they use EventBridge is a marvelous thing. It's something that I find amazing how customers are using EventBridge and many other services as well. And so it is with layers as well. As an example, uh, the other pieces that are more, that I think I would define, I would divide that into two buckets that are ones that we're not entirely sure is gonna work in production. For instance, before RDS uh, proxy, Many, many customers that I worked with uh, for the past four or five years on serverless, we are all basically implementing SQL proxy uh, clusters on multiple availability zones to yeah. deal with the issue of uh, the connection pooling or using other practices as well. But we also know that we didn't have a reference architecture that would go and show about them how to do that piece. So those, from, from, that, from that reason, we refrain from re referring to RDS proxy because it was in preview. So if it's in preview, I wouldn't recommend production. Easy one, clear cut. The other pieces like we just announced, uh, well, just we recently announced uh, provision concurrency. It's amazing for specifically Java applications on serverless or others that require some predictable latency. Those are the pieces that it's because it's Lambda, but it's an additional feature. That it's it's about trying and figuring out if your KPIs, if your requirements still work as you use that feature. So it's not so much about AWS telling you do not do not, do not use that or perhaps use this instead. 
that this 20%, 80% is more of our, our role to make sense of this plethora of announcements that we also have, right. that we need to make sense it works for the vast majority of customers. If we don't hear from customers using it, it's difficult for us to, to prove it's working and we, we recommend that. So one thing that in the layers, because I think it's a good point to bring that up now, is what we, we call general design principles, which in fact was the hardest thing to write. It took me, I don't know, months with other people as well figuring out how to do it. The general design principles is what I use when I'm trying to use another service or trying to recommend something to someone that might not be into this best practices like arena, but yeah. I know it might work for them. So the general design principles are seven principles that usually helps you understand whether serverless is going to be good for you on the use case you have, or maybe we need to update those principles. Please let us know. But also, <laughs> also if a service is going to help you out in that towards that direction, not only from the five uh, pillars, but also from the principal perspective. Like you, you, I remember reading lots of articles from you about using staff functions everywhere. And also now you discovered the Lambda destination, which is a new feature. And there's this discussion about when do I use one versus the other. In the design principles, we have one specific that we say orchestrate your application with state machines, now functions, which back then it made a lot of sense. But now with Lambda destinations, this might be not entirely true anymore. So that's mm -hmm. kind of a, wow, as long as I can orchestrate that with that feature, I'm still orchestrating that. It's not my, it's, it's not inside my code that's handling all that pieces. So design principles help us to, I guess, navigate throughout this like fine line, as we call edge, edge, edge or leading practices versus right. best practices. Yeah, and I and actually, I mean, from a um, from a choreography versus an orchestration standpoint, I actually am a huge fan of choreography. I think that's a better way to make microservices talk to one another. Um, trying to orchestrate them. I mean, I love step functions, and for for workflows that absolutely need to follow every step, and you might have to roll things back and so forth. I think step functions the way to go. But once event bridge was introduced, um, and again, having some more visibility into what things do, I mean, for me, I always set up one route that catches everything and just dumps it all into a Kinesis data firehose. And then that goes into S3 and then you can query it with Athena. So you sort of have that. It's not a DLQ, but it's, at least it's a record. You can see every event that came into the system. Um, but once event bridge was introduced, the idea of choreography just becomes so much, you know, so much simpler to kind of work around as opposed to having to use something like SNS or or something else that has to be sort of set up and is it could be disconnected between services. I always used to recommend the pattern of setting up just a microservice that was only an SNS topic that was your event bus, essentially. That was one of mm -hmm. the, you know, because I because again, I'm a huge fan of, of, of that style. Hey everyone, I want to thank our sponsor Epsigon and tell you about their applied observability platform for modern applications, which supports both serverless and containers. Epsigon delivers an auto-instrumented trace-centric APM that automatically correlates traces, logs, and metrics that helps your teams reduce mean time to discovering, mean time to repair, and application downtime. And if you're running microservices, you can't effectively visualize traces without some sort of automation. Now, complexity of data in modern applications is growing faster than the ability to manage that change. When using serverless or containers, traditional monitoring tools do not deploy or scale well, leading to limited visibility, 
which means engineering teams spend a significant amount of time troubleshooting and resolving issues. This decreases the time spent on building new apps and adding functionality to keep up with the competition. If you're building modern applications, ditch the legacy APM solutions that scale poorly, create more overhead, and won't give you the visibility you need into your microservices. Instead, go to epsagon.com slash serverless chats and sign up for an Epsagon account. Try it for free for 14 days, connect your first trace, and even get a cloud observability drone. Once again, that's epsagon.com slash serverless chats. All right, so let me ask you this question because this is something probably you see a lot of people that just start building. And I think if you just start building, that's great, right? I mean, you know, you want to build a monolithic Lambda function. If that's how you want to get started, great. Then you start realizing some of the benefits of breaking it up and, and, and some of that sort of stuff, you know, whether it's scaling independently or it's the, uh, uh, the principle of least privilege and things like that, where you can really get very specific about, um, you know, individual routes and things like that. But anyways, my, I do recommend people just start building. But at what point do you need to seriously look at the serverless lens and and say, okay, we can't launch a production application until this is live? I mean, like, I guess the question maybe is like, what's in it for me as an organization, as a developer to follow this really strictly? Sure. Uh, so we, that's a very great question. And I'm, I'm happy you brought this up because there's a misconception in the field that you use Web Architected once you already finished your application and now you're thinking about go to production and what else do you need to fix or implement. Yeah. This would be a costly way of doing business uh, for, for one particular reason. When you're when you're creating your, 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 your sprints and how you're basically deciding your backlog and what features you're going to prioritize and things like this, by the time you get to the Web Architected and you get this lots of questions and over 100 best practices, the reaction that most customers had, based on my own experience for the past seven years working at AWS is, oh no, I won't have the time. I need to go live next week right. and I will fix it later. But actually that later may never come. And we know that. I mean, the other things get in the way and that happens and it's just natural thing. I like to say, I like to recommend people to use well architected when you are thinking, when you are researching, when you are thinking about which service should I use, which what are the common patterns should I use or what are the common things should I watch out for? Mm -hmm. In the console, it might not be that obvious at first because we do that for a reason too. When you say review my architecture and you start answering those questions, when you answer, even if you answer a single question or two questions, in the report or under the status of your application, it shows how many high risks you have and how many medium risks you have. So I would only recommend you go to production if you have no high risks. Medium risks are something that, for instance, if you have no CloudWatch alarms in your serverless application or no tracing or no structure logging or centralized logging at all, then it might be difficult for you to go to production. But if you don't have, uh, let's say, canary deployments, as an example, or if you don't have iDependence in certain parts of your application, it's something you can definitely go in production and improve as you see along. So looking at high risks first, if you get that nailed, absolutely go forward. And meeting with something, there's always room for improvement, and we know that. Yeah. No, and I like, I like that. I like the strategy of serverless anyways and applying that to the well-architected piece is 
it is very iterative, right? I mean, and actually, uh, James Bezik just had a post that showed like, hey, I'm going to start by capturing this one thing, but then I'm going to send it to EventBridge or to SNS, and and then I'm going to process some secondary component, and then I'm going to do something else. So I love that idea of building incrementally, but I agree. If you're running NPM and you see that you've got like 900 high-risk um, <laughs> um, issues, uh, you don't want to deploy that. So it's the same thing, I would say, with the serverless lens. Um all right, so let's get into some of the details of the serverless lens itself because we've been talking about best practices and and um, and some of the services you can use. So let's actually get into those. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it'd just be interesting to kind of review those so people know which services are available to them and what are the sort of current best practices. Like you said, I'm sure that's going to evolve over time, um, but uh but anyway, so here's uh, so let's let's start with the compute layer, right? These are sort of the, the mm-hmm. in the in the white paper. Um, there's a definition of all of these, um, and you should definitely go and read the white paper. By the way, like if you haven't done that, um, that's just a really good resource to have all that data, and then you know, and you can kind of get that beforehand, maybe even before you start building your application, um, so that when you start going through the uh, the tool, that uh, you know that 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 the, you know, those check boxes are there for you. Um, but so let's start with the compute layer. So from a serverless perspective, what are the compute options? available to us from AWS? Sure. On that, on specifically on the Lens, we have Lambda for doing the, the compute side of things for you. We also have API Gateway for doing some of the REST pieces. And we have step functions for doing some of the orchestration of that state. Ideally, AppSync would be there too, but we're trying to figure out whether that's going to be in the next updates uh, uh, for that. But that these are the primarily ones uh, based on the best practices we have. Compute layer for us is uh, any service within the lens that we selected that process your external request, do some sort of computing, do some sort of a controlling access to those requests before they get to your business logic, for instance. Right. Yeah. And I think it's actually interesting that API Gateway is in that compute um, section because it does actually do quite a bit, right? I mean, you can do throttling and you can do transformations. Um, so API Gateway is a very powerful service uh, that, uh, that that has some really cool features around it. So, um, all right. So then what about the data, the data layer? The data we have, uh, well, where you basically are working with persistent storage. We're not dealing with the cache specifically yet. So mm-hmm. this we were looking at DynamoDB as a, one of the clear winners. DynamoDB is definitely one of them <laughs> being used by quite a lot of customers, specifically on the serverless. Uh, and when we call out not only Dynamo, but we call out specific pieces of Dynamo, like DynamoDB streams and more recently DAX that we've added to. And we also cover other pieces like S3, we cover uh, Elasticsearch, and then that's where we cover AppSync as well. The reason why we're undecided between AppSync being the data layer and also on the compute layer is that a lot of customers are using AppSync on designing what we call a schema first. So they're dealing up exactly how your modular application, which looks similar to a database modeling, if you will. And I wouldn't say kind of, but we, we had to make a decision. And so AppSync in that, in that case, actually, it could fit in both criteria on the compute because it, there's a lot of authorization, a lot of logic, VTL, like API Gateway. But there's a lot more of data aspect in AppSync. And we, we, we tend to say that specifically in the lens, if you're building data-driven uh, applications, when you're trying to model things off, around your data, then AppSync from a GraphQL perspective, if it's something new, then it makes a lot more sense. 
All right, now question for you. How did you let Elasticsearch creep into a serverless lens? <laughs> Uh, so one of the things that happened in the definition was we had all these questions uh, first. Do we add containers in there, specifically Fargate? Do we mm -hmm. add something like Elasticsearch? Because even though it has servers, it's something that we know customers are specifically in 2017 was the most common solution for analyzing your logs. And that was kind yeah. of a best practice we needed to include. So the definition, I think it has to be as updated um, this year to rehash some of those. But the definition for us is a way to introduce all of those services that we're gonna talk throughout the lens. And we created categories to basically introduce uh, what, what exactly that service does within the architecture you choose. So for an Elasticsearch, Elasticsearch was specifically, you wanna do, you have a scenario for mobile applications so full text search for those. Elasticsearch is actually the only option uh, right now. Well, you could do that in Lambda in several different ways, but that's right. kind of off the point now. Yeah, no, but I, it's funny with Elasticsearch because that is, it's, it's been my go-to for, I want to say since 2009, maybe 2008, like very even well before uh, Amazon even had the Elasticsearch service uh, in place. Um, but that is one thing. That is one, definitely one of the missing pieces of serverless is to have a full text search, um, you know, capability around that. Um, also, I guess uh, caching as well for um, you know just a, a generic caching uh, layer. I know some other providers have other things, but um, so what about um, Aurora Serverless? Though I mean, I know that's not in there now. Aurora Serverless still has problems, the same problems with you know exhausting connections and zombie connections, just like you would if you're connecting to RDS. Um, but and it actually it doesn't work with RDS proxy, so um, which is interesting. And if anybody wants to know why that is, my guess, and maybe you can answer this question, my guess is because you need to uh, exceed a number of um, connections and CPU usage in order for the auto scaling to trigger. Um, and if you don't, if you had RDS proxy in front of there, um, then that might not trigger your your server to scale, which is actually part of the problem with my serverless MySQL package is that if you put that in front of Aurora Serverless, um, if you don't set it right, it doesn't scale up, um, which can be more of a problem. But anyways, wh why, you know, like where is Aurora Serverless on that list? Like how much of a risk is it to use that? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't call this as a risk because we know customers are using that. So the reason is not in the lens yet. It's, it's exactly for the reason you just mentioned about uh, that connection pooling because we didn't have specific guidance on what are the best ways to tackle that. Now we have uh, RDS proxy. So now it's something that we could not only bring RDS, uh, Elastic Cache and a bunch of other services that are VPC specific, which previously had a lot of latency. So now we yeah. can bring all of these, all these services in a new update. And then we can add some callouts if you are going to use uh, Aurora uh, servers, Aurora, for instance, here are some of the caveats that we know customers are using successfully in production. So for now, it's not because it's from 2019, uh, from the last reInvent, uh, but in upcoming updates, we, we, we do plan to add that. 
Right. Yeah, and there's the data API too, which is uh, which is very cool for I would say for asynchronous stuff. I don't know if it's ready for synchronous uh, processes, you know, because it does it does have a higher sort of startup latency. But um, yeah, I mean, again, so many. I don't even know how you're going to fit all these things in a single <laughs> serverless lens. There's just too many things to add. Um, all right. So what about messaging? Uh, the messaging in the streaming layer. So we talked about EventBridge not being there yet. So what what do you have available to do that? Yeah, so before EventBridge, which is something, again, we do plan to add in upcoming updates, especially now that so many customers are using, and James Bestwick, developer advocate, has been doing a great job evangelizing mm. some of the possible use cases. Uh, before that, the classic ones you just mentioned about SNS, SQS, I didn't have SQS specifically call out there, uh, but SNS is basically like the go-to for low latency asynchronous communication between services. And that's still the case today. If customers are using EventBridge and SNS, and you can, you can use SNS for very low latency, although it's not the same feature set, it's a very different service. And then streaming, well, Kinesis kind of clear winner, and then we, we also added Kinesis Firehose. The only difference there is that we were to add a lot more, uh, I guess, specifics about Kinesis and streaming, but we didn't add because, well, now it's public. We have a specific lens about analytics that dives into much greater length about Kinesis, firehose, and some of the configuration pieces that you might want. So messaging, we basically kept it short for SNS, but we do plan to add now with SQS as an event source and event bridge. All right. So now, even though you have to pay per shard for Kinesis, do you consider Kinesis to be serverless? I think we had this conversation uh, when we wrote in the 2017. I can't tell you how much of a debate. Just to give you an idea, uh, when the first serverless lens, I had roughly 70 plus revisions before we got out. And even, yeah. the, and even like before we went out publicly, I had over 700 revisions uh, actually, as, as 700 edits on things like, well, is this serverless? Is this serverless? Is this? <laughs> so what, <laughs> what I basically had to do is uh, I, uh, the agreement we made was there are things that are not serverless, like uh, Elasticsearch is definitely not one of them. Uh, Kinesis, on the other hand, you're not, you definitely have this knob that you have to tweak about uh, the shard counts. Mm -hmm. And but at the same time, it's something that empowers or is the basically the backbone of many serverless applications doing streaming. So for that reason, we decided to say, is this something that is the backbone of a serverless application successfully running in production? If it's it, then what can we do to make it more easier to manage and easier to operate following those best practices? So Kinesis falls into that bucket. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. You know yeah, I mean. you didn't answer my question. I wanted you to email Chris Munns and tell him that, yes, it was serverless. Uh, all right. So how about the uh, user management and identity layer? Sure. So, well, in this case, we only have Cognito. Uh, Cognito helps us. And at that, I would say serverless. <laughs> Though I'm implicitly answering the previous one. Uh, so Cognito helps us to do the OAuth flow mechanisms, or more recently, a lot of customers are now using for custom authentication mechanisms like passwordless, uh, similar to Slack, or, or many other communi uh, communication tools nowadays. So Cognito falls into that bucket. There's not much to say there. We didn't spend too much time explaining too much about identity pools versus user pools. So yeah. we, we briefly talk on the security pillar about 
ensuring that you are using uh, identity metadata like scopes in all of flows and many other uh, mechanisms to, to do something more secure. But beyond that, it's like it's plain simple cognito integration and using federation if you can too. Yeah. And then what about like JSON web tokens? I know that like the new HTTP APIs, um, which we haven't talked about, but those um, are primarily just used. I think that's all they use is, is uh, the JWAT tokens, right? So is that something where the lens might eventually get to a point where it says, you know, it's okay to use OAuth? Um, like that might be a, you know, fine for the identity layer because um, you're already integrating with those or is it something where the lens is going to say very specific to just AWS services? No, not really. If you go to the security pieces, you can, there's a, when you go to the very first question, actually, when we ask about security, uh, uh, some of the security identity or throttling, if you will, we, we go, we do a rundown in the paper specifically mm -hmm. of when do you use IAM authentication, SIGV4? When do you use API keys? When do you use custom authorizers? When do you use something like OAuth, uh, like JWT? Yeah. Uh, previously, with the REST API gateway, it was very like uh, a contrived example of just using validating the JWT token was valid. That works for simple use cases, but it wouldn't work for something more enterprise Z, where you need to verify a lot more logic on the, the, the JWT specifically. So we we don't make that distinction about do not use JWT or use this instead. What we call out in the lens is here are all these possible ways of you to do authorization. And here's specifically, this is authentication, this is authorization, and these are the pros and cons of which. So that's kind of the line we, we go. All right. All right. So what about the edge layer? Because I think edge computing is getting extremely popular, right? I, I don't know if you've been following along, but Cloudflare just mm -hmm. did this huge thing where like now it's like nanosecond cold starts and expanding the workloads they can do, adding more languages. So I think the edge is gonna be really interesting, especially from a compliance standpoint in terms of like where you're processing data and handling workloads and things like that. So where, where are we now with the edge um, in terms of the serverless lens, but where do you think, I'd actually actually, just a question beyond the serverless lens, but where do you think AWS is gonna go with that edge computing stuff? And one thing I, I was, so actually first, I would definitely agree. I think it's something that's becoming more and more popular. One thing that I, I was very surprised to see the uptick of customers using it without naming customers specifically yet because they're not public, is the amount of customers going from single page applications, which we've been seeing being popular over the years, to something like going back, I guess, if you will, yeah. uh, into the server side rendering. And now more specifically, something like Gatsby, which is something super popular and super handy. Yeah. But the Lambda at Edge thing, or doing the compute at the edge is becoming hugely popular in the streaming. And more recently, uh, customers are using Edge to, to do not only a click streaming uh, of those analytics pieces, but also doing data ingestion in multiple regions, which is something mm -hmm. that's been quite popular now. For the edge layer, it's something I want to add in the new update as well, specifically covered the server-side rendering. There are customers doing hundreds of thousands of requests per second on server-side rendering that it's something that we want to detail a bit more what we mean by server-side rendering to do that at the edge. How do you do cache so you reduce your cost but you equally get the performance and SEO mm -hmm. of that. So, at the moment, from what I'm from what I'm being following on this on the edge pieces, customers are now more comfortable with server side rendering and uh, um, 
now more recently incrementally static generation with something that Next.js just did. Yeah. So we've been following on that pieces, but applications that live completely in the edge, I haven't seen that much yet, but as edge makes more progress, it lifts some of those limitations for timeouts and RPC calls. I think we might be seeing that shortly. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. I, I think that, you know, SPAs are, are great and they have their use. And I think if you're rendering, uh, if you're doing uh, server-side rendering and then, you know, that rendered page, then, you know, the first paint happens very quickly, then you can start interacting with it and so forth. I think it's a really popular way that we're seeing a lot, especially like you said with Next.js and like what Vercel's doing and some of these other, uh, some of these other companies. Um, so I think that's really, really interesting. So that'll be cool to see you know, where that's going to fit into an overall serverless strategy, because certainly if your if your front and then or if you're excuse me, if your front end is going to be rendering web pages, then I think the edge is going to play a major part in that. And if AWS has a good strategy around that, that'll be very interesting to see. Um, okay, so system monitoring and deployments. So in that case, it's a very it's a very simple one. We 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 see CloudWatch as being like the backbone of all those metrics and logs and KPIs that customers use. X-ray, which is our official mechanism of doing distributed tracing, and then SAM is when we we call out our official way of doing uh, deployments as well. But we don't rule out specifically choose this framework over the other framework. What we recommend instead of from from being timeless, because <laughs> as you mentioned, it changes yeah. a lot the landscape, sure. is do use a serverless framework. In this case, we are we are, we are basically outlining SAM as the official version from AWS, but we also recommend many other frameworks as well. It's all about what services you use for metrics, KPIs, and logs, and tracing, and what you use to make sense of all these little Lambda functions that tend to grow organically how do you handle right. those so that case a framework right yeah and actually i think that that category is probably one of the largest categories that's been or the category that's been affected most by third-party services right so you have sure. all of those monitoring tools um that that have launched you have a number of different deployment um, engines and frameworks that help with that hi everyone I want to thank our sponsor, TriggerMesh. TriggerMesh is a cloud-native integration platform provider built on Kubernetes, and it now offers an integration to route virtually any non-AWS event source to Amazon EventBridge. With these capabilities, TriggerMesh radically expands the potential to build event-driven applications, combining the best-of-breed cloud services with mission-critical applications that still reside within legacy data centers. With TriggerMesh Cloud, users can kick off AWS Lambda functions using events from on-prem or other cloud providers. Things like a GitLab code commit or Slack message could trigger a Lambda function, or Azure activity logs could populate a consolidated data lake on AWS. By using TriggerMesh as a conduit for automated event-driven workflows, enterprise users can now enhance and automate mundane tasks and execute them in AWS based on changes wherever they're happening. TriggerMesh is cloud-native and supports a large set of event sources, including GitHub, GitLab, Google Storage, Azure Storage, IBM MQ, Oracle DB, Kubernetes, and more. For more information and to start integrating all your applications cloud-natively, visit TriggerMesh.com. So in the system now, you or in the current um, uh, in the current version of the of the white paper in the lens, you're recommending SAM, as you said. 
What do you think about the CDK though, and also maybe SAR? Like, where are those going to fit in? You think in the future of the lens? So the SAR, we have some references already as links, but not specifically as a service uh, because it wasn't uh, something that it wasn't. I think it acts more of a, a aids your deployments as opposed to this is your, how you deploy things uh, as in mm-hmm. a SAM or serverless framework, if you will. Um, so and the CDK is different though. CDK uh, it wasn't it wasn't GNG recently, and some yeah. of the constructs wasn't it wasn't. I think if I'm not mistaken, API Gateway still is not GA is uh, is actually. Uh, either preview or beta at the moment. So there are there are some things that I wouldn't be able to recommend in the lens. Uh, as in, we know customers could use L1 constructs like lower level constructs and make their way because yeah. it's basically cloud formation either way. But in this case, we're basically recommending sound because we know it's working in production and we know they can just use it. CDK, it's more of a discussion. We need to think how we can frame this in the serverless lens. I think what CDK enables today. It's something we couldn't do easily before, like the likes of Liberty uh, Mutual and many others, uh, like Alma Media is one of the examples that I was blown away by how they use SCDK so effectively. When you're doing multiple best practices at a large organization in multiple teams, CDK makes it so much easier to onboard those practices, internalize those blueprints than if you were to do SAM or service framework. Right. Well, service framework has the components, if I'm not mistaken, which can now do something similar. But doing a uh, doing an imperative way, it makes it easier. But at the same time, I've recently have found customers actually tripping up with the amount of abstractions. Developers got abstract, right? It's just right. okay. If you have the power of doing it, why not doing exactly. it? Exactly. But then, but then at the same time, you get the problems with. I now have no idea what this line build the best application possible serverlessly on AWS constructor. And then you have to dig in and it's kind of a complicated. And this is not a new problem. This is something that we've been seeing like 2015 when I started doing microservices in production, when customers would have seven deployment tools because one found a better way to abstract things. Right. So I think CDK has its it's it's placed on those customers looking to use programming language to easier easily deploy those applications. But in the serverless, SAM is definitely predominant. A CDK on containers on the other side is definitely made life so much easier to deploy containers on AWS. Yeah, and I and and I was sort of against um, the CDK initially because I was like, oh, you know, that's another layer of abstraction on top <laughs> of a layer that. of abstraction on top <laughs> of a layer of abstraction. Uh, but what I do like about what people are doing with the CDK, and then you mentioned this about sort of baking in some of those best practices, and same thing with serverless components, is sort of if you're a team and you say, all right, here's the bootstrap for a serverless microservice, and really all we want to do, you know, all of my uh, all of my X-ray and my uh, my logging and um, my you know whatever my security best practices are and all that stuff, any layers that I need. If you can encapsulate that all into one construct and then be able to just add services or add you know routes or whatever it is that you're doing on top of that, I think that's a really powerful level of abstraction um, because I think that could give us the ability to just say, all right, 
I don't have to have a, you know, 600 file bootstrap template that I use to start every new, uh, every new serverless project that a lot of that stuff could just be baked in. Um, and again, same thing with serverless components. And uh, I mean, even, you know, Pulumi and some of these other ones that are doing sort of similar stuff. So I do like that idea of potentially being able to sort of encapsulate that. But, um, but anyway, so uh, deployment approaches. So you mentioned canary deployments earlier. So what are the what are the best practices now for uh, for deploying or what or for those deployment approaches? Deployment approaches haven't changed much. So it's it's still the same as before. We still have all at once, which you basically deploy a thing specifically on Bev. You're deploying something, you're iterating fast, and you want to make sure whatever you deploy, it's whatever it's working or it's not working. When you're going to production, you still have the, the, the mix between should I do blue-green, should I do canaries? Canaries is an easier one to, to think about, to reason about, because you have to have a lot of traffic to be able to shift a percentage of your traffic to a newer version. And that's kind of a, where most people get tripped in when you're doing server-side rendering, which is why I want to have a dedicated piece of server-side rendering at Edge. People are trying to use canary deployments at server-side rendering when in fact more than 70% of the traffic was being cached. So you yeah. wouldn't be able to see any of that and then you go and then you break. Blue-green is kind of a classic one. You keep both of them and then you switch uh, using a DNS or using some other pieces. So it, haven't, it hasn't changed much. It's not specific to serverless per se, but in the lens we cover how you could do that using SAM or using any other frameworks. And I think there's a table. Yeah, I'm just looking at the lens paper now myself. There's a table that we, we basically tell you these are the differences between all these three and when they use uh, each. It's more common for people to use linear deployments. So you're shifting percentage of a traffic over a period of time. And then you use KPIs to revert if something went wrong. Right. Yeah. So that's a that's interesting because I think what you <laughs> the best thing you can take away from that is just do not do like, you know, SAM deploy right into production from your laptop, for example. <laughs> you should have you should have some strategies, um, you know, in order to especially CICD and, and some of those other things that I think make a lot of sense. So um, so read the paper, figure that stuff out. I do want to talk quickly, though, before I let you go um, about some of the use cases. And that's one of the things that the paper does is it outlines a few scenarios. Um, and I and this is what I think more people need to see, because like you said, your best practices and the things that make it into these papers are based off of whether or not customers and you know uh, technical specialists and and evangelists and so forth are using these successfully. So let's just go through these quickly. Just give me an overview of it and and sort of um, and maybe you can outline some of the best practices for these. Um, but like restful microservices, for example. Sure. So the restful microservices was actually well one of the classic ones. Once API Gateway came out. Uh, most customers were using this as like like the go-to use cases. And so the, the microservices, we instead of creating a, a bigger picture of what the microservice might look like, that wouldn't it wouldn't fit into a diagram. Uh, we right. chose to do something more conservative, which we want to update now uh, in the next one to show a bit of caching, a bit of other pieces that also come through now a VPC that enables you to do more interesting things. So in the in the RESTful API, what we cover is that how do you have an API that your client will interact with with a contract, and then how your backend, in this case using Lambda functions, can interact with your persistent storage. So we chose something very simple. And then you basically just store something into DynamoDB. However, into the into the caveats or configuration notes, 
we actually cover some of those pieces that are more specific. Like we talk about uh, data uh, being being closer, uh, like geographically being closed. How do you work with uh, API gateway access logs? Back in the days, people were just enabling logs for API gateway, and it all of a sudden you have your incoming requests and your responses all in plain text in your logs. So customers were more sensitive to security. They would be like, oh no, there's got to be a better way. So in the configuration notes, we, we basically talk you through some of those things, like how do you do logging for the REST API gateway uh, the better way? And how do you basically model some of those other pieces to do full text search on logging operations? It's a, it's a very contrived example. It's more to show this is how simple a RESTful microservice could be in serverless. But it's something that we want to update to include now uh, DAX, which it wasn't easily done before with DynamoDB with Lambda or yeah. Elastic Cache now and things like this. Yeah, and I love I love this just the idea of RESTful microservices with uh, with serverless because again it just you don't need web servers anymore, right? It's just amazing what you can do um, with with these with these APIs. Uh, and and I know there are a lot of blog posts out there that say, oh, the cold starts and so forth. It's not ready for prime time. It is ready for prime time. So there are lots of your customers <laughs> using this. I know I've been using this for I don't know probably. 25, 30 projects at this point that are um, that are out there. So very good, very good scenario and example to, and use case for that. Um, all right. So another one that I know that Alexander Samovich would we would like is the uh, Alexa skills. Yeah, the Alexa skills. It was a partnership with the Alexa team that we know many customers have been using uh, Alexa for Lambda. There are also other use cases as well, but Alexa was one of them that well, not only Alex uh, as well used a lot <laughs> and advocates a lot. He did so many things as well. But one thing that we saw was missing from the Alexa was we were always explaining to customers how to use Alexa with serverless into here's how you can choose a random number from 1 to 15. Or here's a Hello World example. It, there wasn't anything about good practices or good design decisions because it's also a very different way. You also need to think about UX of your audio and your transcript and how you're interacting with the customer. So it basically gave a little bit more room for Alexa scenario to tell you when you are designing a skill, what are the things you have to keep, you have to keep in mind? And what, are the, what a good experience or what delightful experience actually means. Some, some of those kind of things you keep in mind. And we also go into more detail about how a proper Alexa skill might look like. It's not going to be something like an Alexa talking to a Lambda that talks about Dynamo. There are other things as well. So that we cover things like DynamoDB outscaling. What if you are using IoT with Alexa home skill? How does that fit together? So that Alexa skill covers a common Alexa skill, how to design it. And when you expand an Alexa skill to do more things, how does that look like as a whole? All right, what about mobile backends? Mobile backends is, uh, you probably have seen the service airline example. It's it's becoming one of my favorite ones uh, nowadays. Uh, so the mobile backend, it's it's covering uh, AppSync or GraphQL specifically on how customers are specifically are building mobile applications these days. Uh, there's been some changes with Data Store and Amplify changed a lot recently. We have to update. But it covers things like when you are dealing with um, uh, SMS or multiple factor authentications or user registration or assets or dealing with a 
a single graph, as we typically call in GraphQL, and handling multiple types of data sources like uh, Elasticsearch for full text on part of your mobile application, mm -hmm. parts of your data that could be into DynamoDB or NoSQL, parts of your data that could be in a relational database, and some other third-party communications that you want to use Lambda with. So that mobile covers all of these aspects on how we use all these different services to hydrate a, a data that's in DynamoDB that now goes into Elasticsearch, or how does your user use a single API that can talk to different data sources based on what your customer wants. Yeah, uh, and I love I love the approach to mobile backends with especially with GraphQL and, and being able to avoid that overfetching or underfetching problem. Um, that's all great stuff there. All right, what about stream processing? The stream processing is one that uh, it got a new update, not in the service lens, but specifically on the analytics lens. Yeah. It covers things like uh, the stream processing and how you how you handle uh, uh, batch processing specifically. It doesn't it doesn't go into very much a very detailed like the analytics lens as of, as of now. But we do cover things like best practices about using a single shard, but when you have to use a new parallelization factor, uh, or when how do you how do you design a good streaming solution, your payload and stuff like that? How do you handle high throughputs in DynamoDB with streaming or partition keys and stuff like that? For Lambda doesn't have a specific library for handling uh, like KPL or Kinesis producer library or Kinesis mm -hmm. consumer library like you normally have in a EC2 or container. So we give you some of the workarounds on how you can handle some other libraries that you could do or dealing with duplicate uh, re records or idempotency and things that evolved as well. Like we used to say, because shards, uh, because because of the way stream processing work, if your Lambda function fails, you will block you will block the stream and you will keep sending the same records until you probably have some data loss. Recently, mm -hmm. we announced async controls that give you more flexibility. So we added that recently too. Awesome. All right, and then the final one here is uh, the web application, which is sort of you know goes beyond just the I guess the RESTful microservice and adds you know S3 and some of the other stuff, edge computing. Um, I know you said you wanted to update that with you know some SSR and, and some of that, but what what do we have currently for that scenario? At the moment, it's very similar to the mobile application. It, it learns from the mobile where you have the static assets into S3 and you have a CDN on top, so you separate the two. You still use Cognito exactly the same way for using uh, user authentication, user management, but you're now dealing with your API gateway uh, handling the authorization of the JWT token that you got from Cognito and then landing DynamoDB, which is very similar to the REST API. The difference is that you're now using uh, as, as some more sophisticated authorization mechanism that you probably would do in a REST API, because it could be service-to-service -service communication where IAM would be a lot simpler, or you could also use uh, custom API keys when you're doing things like um, throttling, but not only throttling, but also tiers of your application is in freemium, in premium or business or enterprise. So we go a little bit more details on if you're going to go down that route. These are some of the good practices you have to follow. Right. Perfect. All right. So I wanted to talk to you about the five pillars, but I think we're running out of time. So maybe what we could do is just so you mentioned them earlier. You mentioned operational excellence, security, reliability, performance efficiency, and cost optimization. But I think what a really interesting aspect of serverless on this 
it has to do with cost, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of things around reliability and security that are already baked in. But I'd like to talk to you, just you know, use some time wisely here and talk to you about the cost aspect of it. So cost optimization in serverless applications, um, and I guess in the well-architected framework in general, um, like what are your what are your thoughts on that? What why why is that so powerful? You think? So there are many aspects that we could tackle. I think when when customers think about cost, they typically would think about if I have the server running, how much it would cost versus having a serverless approach. So they would try to do apples to apples when in fact it isn't. I think we have this discussion many times written in blogs like yourselves or Yan Kui or Ben or even Lego as well on growing serverless teams. When in fact, one of the most cost, uh, costly aspect is actually developer hours. Actually those yeah. developers, one of the things that I, I think the main reason it, it serverless, I was so passionate about serverless was when I, I used to work with customers where they had to have a platform team, we have to have a SRE if you like, and many other people to basically maintain a basic platform to run those services that they needed. And serverless, uh, when I was working with British Gas uh, specifically, or Centrica, as they went on to the reInvent two years ago, we basically, all we had was, you know what, let's start with four developers. You add one architect to help us, and you have someone from security as well, and someone with ops, so we can basically have a team that we can have people on and off. But this developer should be able to do. And in basically three months, less than three months, to be honest, we got, we, they got no, had no AWS experience and they got off the ground and got something in production as well with those practices. So that, that changed the cost perspective because there was one of the applications that they had over 100 people to maintain. So when you're thinking about a server or a, we're not, we don't even have to go too deeply on the load balancer versus Fargate versus, you know, all these nitty details. By people specifically, instead of saying, oh, we don't need all these people anymore. It's like actually quite the opposite. You could train these people now to do a different role. And you now have this army of talent people already in your organization. You could retrain to add more features and you can ditch the competition in a way. So I think that cost is something that you see in the serverless lens as well, which was also the hardest. How do you ask questions about cost when serverless right. is mostly like cheap, if you will, inexpensive, exactly. if you will? Yeah, no, and I, I think that I think that to me is the biggest uh, the biggest cost factor is not how much does it cost to run a Lambda function or what does it cost for API Gateway. Um, there are certain services where you can start running up some bills, um, but for the most part, it's just how much does it cost to have those SREs, like you said, or to have those DevOps people, or to have all these other ops people that have to constantly monitor servers and make sure things are up and running. And then just the wasted processing time that you're, you know, all that idle time that you're probably getting, over-provisioning, under-provisioning, trying to set up auto-scaling. Um, there's just so much that you can save uh, by, by going serverless. So, um, Awesome. All right. I have one listener question for you. And if anybody sure. wants to ask questions to the guests here on Serverless Chats, go to serverlesschats.com slash insiders, sign up to be an insider, and you can ask questions to our wonderful guests like Ader here. Um, so I have a question from Michael. And he, uh, this, I, I, I'm not 100% sure I understand the question exactly, but maybe we can break it down. I uh, said, I'd like to learn about best practices on sharing models between services that use the same table. Um, so uh, talking about, I'm assuming, uh, single table design in, in DynamoDB. So in my case, I have an API service and an ETL service which share the same table, and I haven't found an approach that I'm happy with yet. So I don't know if there's talking about 
uh, entity models or API gateway models, but I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on that question? Yeah, I was going to ask you the same. I'm not sure if he means or about API gateway models where you basically define your contract and how uh, your client or your consumer is going to work with, or if it's about the data entity model when you're trying to design the database or single table, if you will. Yeah. Uh, in the case of API Gateway from models, uh, I think there's a great example of a, we have an open source, an example called serverless e-commerce platform, where I think is the most, I, th I know actually it is the most comprehensive example that shows how you do with API Gateway models, especially event schemas for event bridge as well and the tooling around it. Uh, and then it shows you some of the, des the design decisions and why we made what we made. So have a look at that one to give you an idea about the tooling and how to share some of those models across services when it makes sense. Because there are some, some parts of the contract that you can share. From a database perspective, I think it goes into that where we think, is that multiple services accessing the same database? Or should we, maybe we need to think about that. Can you explain it more? Or if it's, it's something just like an ETL, like a service airline, is another service adding new flights into the, the service that already handles those flights. Then in that case, it's, it's, it's more about making sure you don't get into the situation where the ETL uses more of your database than your service can use at the time. Because I've had many mm -hmm. incidents in production like that as well, even in serverless, when the ETL function basically took over all the concurrency of the whole account. So you need to be mindful of both things. Uh, but from a model's perspective, I don't know if the, I don't know if that person means single table, but it, it goes as long as you have a way to protect uh, your ETL or not over consuming or over utilizing in a way that impacts your customer experience. I don't see that much of an issue. The issues I saw with models is mostly managing with frameworks like a service framework or SAM. How do I store these things? I store in a file. How do I make sure it's it's easy to change? But also, especially in that single table context, it's quite complex to get it right. But once you get it right, it looks like a dream. But then you also need to think about when you make changes, how do you make those changes? So I don't think I have an answer if I understood that correctly. <laughs> I think we're going in circles, <laughs> I guess. Um, no, yeah. Well, I think I'm, I'm wondering too if maybe, and, and from the in ETL perspective, and maybe this doesn't answer the question, but if you have an API service that's accessing a table um, and loading certain amounts, you know, certain types of data, then you have an ETL task that runs at night. It depends on what that ETL task is doing. If that's converting like, um, or if it's doing aggregations maybe. So it's aggregating uh, counts across logs or uh, something like that. I, I would say I wouldn't want that ETL task touching my production table directly. I think I would want that ETL task, if it's doing some sort of roll up, um, that that should operate maybe in its own table and then just send those aggregations um, through an API gateway maybe, or through a, an event, uh, maybe event bridge, um, so that, that, so that the, the API service could, uh, could uh, accept that event or those updates but through a contract, maybe through an API or through something like an event schema. Um, I don't know. I, and maybe this is not answering the question, but I think it's interesting debate too, because you know that's the part of the problem with microservices in serverless is where's the boundary of the microservice and mm -hmm. how many, you know, does every function get its own table? No. Um, but I mean, that's the kind of thing, like how many functions should we interact with it and should functions ever cross between uh, bounded contexts? I don't think they should, um, but I think there are still a lot of uh, people trying to figure that out. 
In fact, I was looking at on the analytics lens, just for I was just searching for ETL, and they actually go into a great length about how to choose your ETL, whether you're doing like a nightly batch or if you're doing a string batch mm -hmm. or on-demand batch or a high-frequency uh, ETL. Have a look at that. If hopefully that answers your question on the design principles of analytics lens, there are a bunch of scenarios specifically on how to use. ETL and separate your query like you were just mentioning, Jeremy. But instead of an API, you have a, like, like a data lake, if you will, and use a TINA to search for that specific aggregation. If that's what you're after, uh, it's right. quite difficult to know <laughs> on the question. But the analytics lens uh, covers a lot specifically about ETL. Uh, ping us on Twitter. I mean, we're happy to help have that debate publicly as well. Awesome. All right. Well, listen, Ader, thank you so much for spending the time with me, sharing all this knowledge. Um, if people want to find out more about the serverless lens or they want to contact you, how do they do that? So the serverless lens, if you just search for well-architected serverless lens, you will find uh, the white paper. But you also go to the console, and if you search for well-architected, you will find the well-architected tool right in the console. So when you're searching, when you're creating a new application, actually, you can basically select serverless lens, and you get all the questions and the best practices. That's that's the best way to find the best practices if you don't want to and if you don't want to read the 80 pages up front, because it would give you a more summarized version of what is the best practice why it is important for you to do, and how exactly do you do step by step? How do we evolve that? And if you want to find me, I'm also on Twitter, uh, Aitor underscore Lessa. And if you need to message me as well, uh, if you are doing something on the service lens and you want to give some updates or if you are, have specific feedback, reach out to me on email as well. Use my last name, Lessa, L-E-S-S-A, at Amazon.com. All right. Well, we will get all that into the show notes. Thanks again, Nader. <laughs> Big pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Ada Lesser for being my guest this week and to our sponsors, Epsigon and TriggerMesh. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 61. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. <laughs>